Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This week on Buckets, Boards, and Blocks, we have a very special guest and a very special topic, something that NBA fans are passionate about. Well, basketball fans are definitely passionate about it. Our guest is the legendary official Ronnie Nunn who has had an amazing career as a player, official, supervisor of NBA officials, broadcaster, consultant, and just overall fantastic guy. He's coming up in a second, but first, Darlene, let's run it. Buckets, Boards, and Blocks is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Buckets, Boards, and Blocks is hosted by a former Georgetown Hoyer who likes nothing better than a well-executed fade screen and thinks DC ballers are the smartest. A lover of threes in transition, Monica McNutt. Thank you so much, Darlene. And yes, I love a good fade screen. Today's guest is one of those highly intelligent DC ballers that I also love. His name is Ronnie Nunn. Ronnie was born in Brooklyn, but played college basketball at George Washington University, the Colonials, and was a member of the George Washington All-Century Team. He's a member of the school's Basketball Hall of Fame, played professional ball in Mexico, where he was named by the Mexican press as the North American Player of the Decade for the 1970s. He was in camp with the Knicks and Nets in the NBA and the Denver Nuggets of the ABA. He has been a special education teacher and assistant coach at Pace University and began his 19-year career as an NBA official in 1984. Ronnie served as the NBA's director of officials for five years and was a broadcaster for NBA TV. He is now a consultant with the EuroLeague and other organizations. He runs a camp called None Better Refs, where he trains and develops younger basketball officials. And on this show, he now joins us. Ronnie, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, Thank you so much, Monica. Pleasure to be here with you. So I just want to make sure that our listeners get what we're doing today. We are having a conversation with not just one ref. I mean, I love my dad, Ronnie, but your refereeing resume is a little bit deeper. But we've also got Pops here on early. And then Bruce is going to jump in as well, because I think I'm excited to get into this conversation and the perspective that you bring, Ronnie, and you too, Dad, because refereeing has become more of a topic as of late, it feels like, in the NBA than to me it has ever been before. Uh, if you're asking me that question, the answer is yes, it is. It, it's more of a topic, like everything else is more of a topic today. It comes to the surface, and officiating is probably uh, discussed and talked about just as much as teams are discussed on their win-loss records, really. So I just want to jump straight into this, though. And I know we've got some things. You've got camps going. We'll definitely make sure we talk about none better refs. But, Ronnie, when you evaluate or are watching the NBA today, do you chalk the conversation about refs up to the way that we are consuming the game in that everything is available on replay on your cell phone almost instantaneously? Or have we seen a shift in the quality of the game and the quality of officials? Um, well, you know, I think the obvious is the technology. And the technology has been with us, uh, you know, even when I started back in 84, 
but it wasn't as keen as it is today. I mean, technology is part of uh, everything we do in sports, and particularly in basketball officiating when you're making decisions. So I think it's good that some of the rules have allowed officials to go to the replay system and get support. That raises the accuracy of their work game by game. You know, it's almost like taking a test. Every time you have a game, it's a test. And and for officials at the NBA and at the NC2A probably as well, the highest levels are, you know, 88 to 92 percent. And, and that's kind of passing. When you have a game like that, usually you don't have any problems. But But having said that, you know, the technology has moved on. And so the other side of that coin is to make sure – the officials are trained well and have a lot of experiences on the game as it is seen today and the game as it always is. You know, it's cyclical right now. It's it's a game on the perimeter. Uh, but trust me, the, the game of low post play and big men getting back down there will come about again. So the training and development of young people in this field is continuous. And uh, I, I think I saw that more, not in my own uh, career on the floor, but especially when I became an administrator and figuring out how we can better uh, see the greatest, the greatest observer in the stands, which was now the camera. So uh, the camera is scoring on us, and we've got to get better. So it's a combination of the two, yeah, but you definitely need training and development on a continual basis to meet that standard. Hey, hey Ronnie, I'm going to jump in there. How you doing? This is Kevin McNutt. Um, hey, Kevin. Uh, real quick, when you played at GW, who was your coach? I just I'm curious. <laughs> we had a few coaches, and I think that's one of the reasons why we couldn't uh, couldn't get it together. Sometimes we also lost a couple of very good players. But the main coach uh, was Wayne Dobbs. Initially, he coached me uh, for a year on the varsity, and then of course uh, Carl Sloan from the University of Richmond. He came. Uh, Dobbs came from Oglethorpe. Uh, the assistant coach uh, John Guthrie was a key person in me attending GW. And uh, GW was a good place. They wanted to turn the corner. Uh, and uh, we had one big player from Mackin High School named Howard Matthews. Had he not hurt his ankle, about six nine kid, I mean, he was just tremendous. I think we would have done some damage. As a result, my time there was really uh, 500, uh, you know, the same amount of wins, the same amount of losses. Right. And, uh, and, you know, I, I wasn't no Pete Pistol Maravich or, or, or Calvin Murphy or anybody like that to carry a team to any kind of national prominence. So we needed some more good players. But uh, I had a wonderful time at GW, and I'm glad I selected going there. Right, right. I just had to ask because, um, you know, we're here in D.C., and I, I follow college basketball. It's my favorite sport. And, uh, you know, I went to George Mason, and then you know, uh, I, I played high school at um, – St. Anthony's right before Thompson went to Georgetown. So that's why I always uh, have that. I, I, I got another name, DC name that I'm very familiar with, that you know, you're, you're very familiar with, Scott Foster. Scott and I started at the same time. We worked together. Oh, wow. Yeah, he's, uh, that, that's great to hear. Scott Foster's a real talent. I, yeah. I enjoyed uh, being with him, especially uh, as his, uh, you know, director of officials. He's a quick learn. He's very talented. And uh, I think he's actually fine-tuned his work um, uh, even more and more. I think he's, he takes great conscientiousness about his work, and I'm happy to see him continually uh, doing well and reaching the highest levels of the game, especially at the finals. So he, he will continue to get better and smooth out any wrinkles uh, that he has, as we all try to do as we learn. 
right, right, right now. Because uh, uh, Scott was, you, you could see it. You could say, hey, this guy's on his way. And I think the big break then was you guys at the NBA went from two to three referees in the what, middle 80s. Is that what it was? Yeah, in 84 I came. It was a two-person uh, game uh, up to 89. Uh, I think the two-person game kept everybody on the balls of their feet. You had to really know how to uh, call plays, or look for places that were the gray areas in your in your in your mechanics, which is sort of like the offense, and uh, much more movement at that time. And then we went to three in '89, um, and I think three kind of threw us back on our heels a little bit. It was almost like this is going to be easier. Uh, we know that this person has this zone to follow or this coverage to follow. And I think that, that perpetuated even until today where we don't, uh, we don't groove so well on the overlaps of coverage. And if we did, we would see things and uh, uh, much more and make sure we can protect each other when someone doesn't see something. It's more about uh, calls or infractions that, that happen and we don't call than the problem with calling. Calling has a pretty high percentage, but our non-calls that are incorrect uh, drops that percentage. And that's where the work is, is really needs improvement. I don't want to get too technical. And I want to. I don't want to hijack Monica's show. But I'm answering his last question, uh, which she was touched on before I jumped in. So the the report in the last two minutes that the NBA gives out after games. Are you? What's your feeling on that? Well, you know, uh, when I was a director, I created the last two minute report, but it wasn't for the public. It was really for an internal thing, like coaches would do uh, when you evaluate how well we're doing in the last two minutes. You know, the pressure is high. Uh, the quality of calls are very high. And the quality of no calls are very high. And uh, all of a sudden, I think at that time, we wanted to be more transparent. And they took that, that kind of programming and they put it in the public side. Uh, and, and I found that a lot of people didn't like it because the purpose was to show that we weren't going to hide anything. If we made mistakes, we were going to show the public. And we also thought it would deter the coaches and the general managers calling in. In other words, they'd say, hey, this happened in the last two minutes, yada, yada, yada. And, and I thought it would, uh, they thought, uh, really, our management team above me thought it would deter some of those calls. I think uh, it, it did and it didn't. I mean, today I didn't work under the last two minutes as they do publicly today, so I really can't say if it hasn't been a deterrent. But I think it's been a weighted thing on the officials. I think some of the players support that it shouldn't be done. Others say it shouldn't be done. Um, I, I just think we have to use it as a base. How well do we do in the last two minutes? How well can we improve on it? And if it's going to stay out there, let's measure it to where we can upgrade ourselves in, those, in that time period. So, Ronnie, this is Bruce. Uh, since Pops was getting, you know, a little personal with some of his hoop background, I wanted to just let people know, the first time I met you, I was at a Celtics game with my son, Adam. You were uh, overseeing the refs, and I ended up in the two seats next to you. So yeah. while you were grading the referees, Adam, my son, who was probably about 12 or 13 at the time, and I are sitting next to you, and you... In, whenever you had sort of a break in action where you didn't have to focus on what you were, you know, grading, yeah, you were explaining the finer points of the game to a 13-year-old kid who loves basketball and an older dude like me. And it was just so generous of you, the way you just, you know, you didn't know us. We had just met you, said hello. And from that moment on, I was like, I learned so, I felt like I got a PhD in refereeing that night, you know, from you. <laughs> and, and, and it's funny. 
we, Monica and I were talking to BJ Armstrong recently and he, and we were asking him about you and, and he said, and we asked him why, you know, what was the deal with Ronnie? And he said, you were one of the keys to your greatness as a ref was your willingness and your ability to communicate with the players to not only, you know, kind of engage in a little back and forth in a respectful way, but just to explain, you know, if he said, well, why was that a foul? And you would tell him. And I mean, to me, that's such a, a really great quality about you. It just speaks to, you know, why you you were so universally respected. But Bruce, thank you so much. Uh, you know, first and foremost, I, I like people uh, in general. And, uh, and second was uh, my, my, my getting into officiating was in a lot of innocence. I was really innocent when I was being uh, tapped on considering becoming an official at the NBA level. I thought it was crazy because I had not known anything about officiating, basically, you know, except what we all kind of look at and know. And to someone to project me to try to be an NBA, it was like, this is, this is some kind of false thing, man. I, 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 you know, here I go back to trying to make the NBA again. I don't want to deal with that. So, uh, but the one talented thing that uh, someone said to me that made sense was, you have no bad habits, and if you have talent, we can train you. And apparently I had some talent, but the training was very, very good. And, and the piece about getting along with people, I mean, uh, I was a special ed teacher and administrator, and I had very difficult young people, some were behaviorally uh, difficult to manage, some, some had some learning disabilities involved. And, you know, you can't take those young people and send them down to the dean because you are the dean and the chief cook and bottle washer for everybody, or 10 or 12 people that you had in the class, and they were difficult to manage. I think I took those things along with my basketball knowledge, and I took it to the court. I didn't want anybody to not be successful in my classroom, even though I made mistakes. So I used to see the court as a classroom, and uh, if I had difficulties with some of the guys, you know, I would try to redirect them and just get to get them to know that Team B is their adversary, and, and my adversary is, is trying to make the best calls I can make all the time. That's where I'm scoring. I have to make the calls. So refocus where you have to, and let me focus back where I have to, and we can get along. And if there's a problem that I don't know about, come and tell me, because I need to know that to better this, you know, to better this whole class to do well. And that was my thinking all the time, and it has been, and it continued to be even after I was a director and uh, and whatever else. And it's a joy to be with young people, and uh, and and that's one of the greatest strengths I think I've ever had. Hey, hey Ronnie, it leads to the question: How long was your curve to get to the NBA? Because nowadays, um, I, I, the highest I got to was D two. Um, but that was by choice because Monica came along with a ball player and I went that route instead of trying. Yeah. But how long did it take you? Um, uh, to, to, uh, did you have to go the college route or just how long, how many years before you got to the NBA? Uh, you know, what was incredible was I got there in four years. I what? started at 30 and I got there at 34. And I will tell you that this was not a result of being some type of child prodigy. Uh, first and foremost, uh, I was part of a program called the New York Pro-Am that was uh, kind of initiated by Cecil Watkins here in New York, who had his roots in parks and department of the city of New York, and he knew about programs and tournaments and things of that nature. Well, the NBA had hired him, and the problem was college officials were having a difficult time transitioning to the pro level. So he created this program in every NBA city for the full purpose of trying to train officials because 
after I'd gotten back from playing some ball, I had a little bit of illness and I had to take time off. I played in this league in New York, and that's when he talked to me about officiating. And he said at first, how do you like this league? I said, yeah, it's a tough league. We've got guys from Europe back in home and back home and college guys that played, older pros that are at four or five years. It was very competitive. He said, well, guess what? This league is not for you. This league is for the officials. Every guy in here is trying to see if they can become an NBA official. So this training ground that I had for two years, uh, I thought after one year I was decent enough to go out to see Daryl Garrison in L.A. for a tryout. And he said, you're not ready. And it was kind of waking me up to that. This was, this was a different path in the basketball triangle, you know, from playing to coaching to this remote place of officiating. So I, I believed him. I asked him, should I quit? And he said, no, don't quit. He said, but you need more training. And then sure enough, I, I went out after two years, and then I got put in the CBA, which is, I guess, the current G League today. Uh, although I think it was much more competitive, which gave me some more education. So two years in the inner city pro-am program and two years in the CBA got me there. And But I was really a very focused person. Even some of the players said to me after I'd make a call and I'd go to my position on the court, and they say to me, you know, hey, Ronnie, uh, you okay? I said, yeah. So you're really into this, aren't you? And I said, yeah, <laughs> I'm into it because in my 30s, I'm either going to be uh, an educational person or I'm going to go back in sports for real or, or I'm out of this thing. So focus at 30 years old is a lot different than focus for young people at, in their early 20s. Right, right, right. Um, now, you said something that was, um, caught me off guard when you said that the college, the college referees were having a tough time transitioning. Why? I think they couldn't uh, – I think the problem was, and I've learned this after officiating, was strength, speed, quickness, uh, low body positioning, physicality in that nature was more difficult than, for them to discern what was right and what was wrong. I think the thinking always is on the outside of people, outside people, fans and others, that in the NBA game you can call a foul anytime you want to, and, and that's really a, a misthought. It really is learning how to put rhythm, speed, balance, and quickness into every call. If a player is affected by his rhythm, speed, balance, and quickness, then you have something to note. I mean, if he's trying to go from A to B and he's being rerouted to C, you have a foul. Uh, and, and that's what I call negotiated movements. Then there's the non-negotiables where, you know, you, you can't put two forearms in a post. I mean, anybody can make that call. So it's combining both those things, and uh, a lot of those guys – uh, was safe in the college areas, and they knew they were taking a chance at a higher level. I think some of them bailed out because of that, mm-hmm. and uh, and then uh, some other. And they, by the way, they did a very good job in their NC2A careers. But this one is, this is high fastball life, you know, in the strike zone. <laughs> I love baseball. I always think refing is like a a batter who's going against the pitcher that puts it at high and tight, and it's in the strike zone, and they're tough swings. To, to, I mean, they're tough balls to swing at. And uh, it, it, at the highest level of basketball in the world, it is a difficult gig, and, and you got to be prepared and uh, pull on the full armor to get through it. I'm glad you said that because one of the things um, when I tell people all the time, you don't. These are the best athletes in the world, and, I, and I'm talking about football players, all sports, because of what they can do with their size, confined quarters, guys can jump, run, and they're big. What people don't understand <laughs> about the yeah. size of these men uh, that, that play this game. Uh, and, and you're right, you can call a foul every trip down the floor, you know, because it's contact, it's just unavoidable. 
And so I agree with you 100%. People just don't understand the size and physicality of, of the player out there on the floor. So wait, Ronnie, I want to go back to Bruce's conversation earlier. He mentioned that we talked with BJ Armstrong, who won titles with the Bulls and played alongside Jordan and Pippen. And so we were talking with him about his experiences with you as an official and just the game in general. And to both of you guys' points, both my dad and yours, Ronnie, like he felt like the game as it's called today to a degree is is not realistic. Like they have essentially tasked officials with legislating all, all of the contact. And in BJ's mind, he's like, that's just not how the game is played. To a degree, some of the contact is avoidable, is unavoidable. So when you watch today's game, um, is it a harder task for officials these days? Like, are there rules that you would change if you were calling the shots? Well, uh, I, I would say this, that the game is easier to referee today because the game is what I call, it's out in the country. Out in the country to me is in the perimeter. You know, the, the game is high and away from the hoop. It's a, it's a drive and dish game. And you have all these shots coming from the perimeter and a lot of shots from the perimeter are much easier to officiate than when you have tough physicality closer to the basket is what I call the city, you know, the city game where it's crowded, it's difficult, and it's physical. And I don't think we see that as much. Um, I think what, what we did our own selves a, um, uh, to become out of favor with the game when we did not handle hand checks on the perimeter well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think the hand check rule has started the game to be cleaner on the perimeter and more open. Uh, I remember when I was trying out with the Knicks when I had uh, uh, Walt Frazier put his stiff arm on me on, on the uh, on, as a guard against me. I said, "Geez, I ain't going anywhere with this guy." Mm-hmm. So it was he, he's a six foot six guard, and I knew uh, all backing down programs were over. I had to face up and try to beat this guy just to start the offense, mind you. But nevertheless, uh, I think the game is easier today. I think some of the standards are good. The, some of the hand checks are good when especially when they are a state hand or they really impede or hold somebody from going one place to another. I think the rest has been a a launch from that time when we made those changes. I think the key player at that time was a, a fellow who happened to be a New Yorker played at Georgia Tech named Kenny Anderson. Yes. Uh, he was a very very good player as a college player and all of a sudden the hand check in the NBA just nullified him. And I think they wanted what the traditionalists wanted. They wanted a more open, fluid, free-flowing game. So today, in my view, it's much easier to referee. And uh, I think the particulars about going to the instant replay are are still good. I mean, for the three-point shot or for the restricted area, semicircle, block charge, I think those are all good, including uh, goal tens in the last two minutes. And I hear there's one coming uh, about the challenge. Each coach will have a challenge in a certain period of time. And I think that's good because it, it seems to go along with some other sports. You're a fan of the challenge? Yeah, I'm surprised. Uh, I'm a fan of the challenge only because uh, it's out there. And uh, if, if it can help an official and, re- and a coach can recognize when he thinks he wants to insert something like that, then, you know, I, I think it's part of it. I just don't want um, I don't want the game to slow down with some of these things. I think we could improve the table work, the replay work for the speeding up of the game. Maybe, you know, we could have an official there or from the instant replay to give the answer uh, pretty quickly so we can get back on the court. But the challenge doesn't scare me. It, they have a challenge in football, I believe, and 
Uh, I'm not too familiar with soccer, although I travel the world and see the game played a lot. It's a, it's a great game worldwide, but the challenge. Uh, wait, let me back up some. First of all, I, I, it was very interesting what you said about when you started. It was was the three point line in when you started. Yeah, no. yeah. I, the three point line was. Yeah, the three-point line, I think, now you got me on that exactly. I think the three-point line was in when I came, because I remember from the ABA, the three-point line was there. They took that from the NBA, incorporated it into the NBA. And by the way, that made a very open game and the three-point shot. I, I want to say 84, the, the line was already in. And by the way, it wasn't difficult. We had, uh, with two referees, we always could seek help from our uh, you know colleague on getting a uh, flash or a Two finger down, which meant only he's on the line. Uh, today, I don't think they incorporate some of the things that worked well for two-person mechanics. There were a lot of things that worked well for us. I think they cordoned off that with the third person. They they, they just took away from some of that uh, uh, latitude that the two-person mechanic gave us. But yeah, so it wasn't a big deal for some of these plays, but uh, they're bigger today because the game is out there and in, 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 out there in the perimeter. Because it was more of an inside, because you you came up, you're dealing with some some big men that um, uh, Bruce and I would know. I don't know Monica remember some of the guys, that, some of the centers that you were dealing. With. There were there were true centers in the league when you when you started. Oh, let me tell you something. I am so proud to be part of. You know, I'm also uh, proud of those players. I'm also I also recognize as a ball player and a coach mm-hmm. how difficult it is to make it to the NBA. When I saw even some of the guys on the bench get in, and I had a sensitivity to them when they would come in because I know their minutes were, were low and, and they had to be effective and do something well. And I always made sure that I didn't make, as you do with everyone, but particularly sure you don't make mistakes with some of the people that come off the bench because their time is limited and their opportunity to, to show effective performance is big for them. But the big men in the league when I came in was, was unbelievable. When you think about Kareem, uh, when you think about Moses Malone, when you think about Robert Parrish, uh, even the toughness and uh, the, the, the sneaky play sometime of a Bill Lambeer, or you think about uh, you know Bill Walton as a sub that came off the bench with the Celtics, um, and, and Patrick Ewing, uh, just Mark Eaton. I mean, these were just powerful and and. and uh, if I mention Kalima, uh, Akeem Olajuwon as well, I hope I mentioned him in there as well. But these were some tremendous low-post people that were automatic with the things that they did well. And um, and that's where you learned how to, how, how to referee. If you couldn't referee in the post during my era, uh, you couldn't hold a job. So, Ronnie, you mentioned uh, one of the most notorious guys ever a couple of minutes, a couple of seconds ago, Bill Lambeer. I was just curious, and again, Pops can speak to this one also, but I want to ask you first, what are some of the little tricks that guys tried to get away with, some of the veteran guys to try and get little advantages? I mean, I heard stories about somebody like John Stockton, who was pretty aggressive guy, even though he didn't look like it. He kind of looked like a choir boy, right? He was right. You know, looked like he brushed his teeth and he combed his hair every five minutes. Uh, but what, are, what were some of the little tricks? What were some of the cuties trying to get away with out there? You know, um, you know, John Stockton, to this day, I don't think people realize it, maybe because, uh, uh, well, I mean, they had the great one-two punch of John Stockton and Carl Malone, but John was one of the toughest six-foot, six-foot-one people I had ever seen play. 
He also, in, in the offense that Jerry Sloan was running, did a lot of screening for guess who? Carl Malone. So the people he was screening, he was screening weren't, you know, guards. He was screening big men that are guarding Carl or another couple of their bigs. And some of the hits he used to take were, were important that we made sure that if he gets a strong hit early on, uh, make sure we make that call because players, players are like they can they can handle the hits if you're calling it. If you don't call it and miss it, then they'll take care of it themselves. But a lot of some of his tricks were like some other the guards did um, on cuts. They would get entangled under the arm of their opponent and make it appear that the opponent was holding him on a cut instead of him really holding uh, the opponent. So. Uh, that that was one. I remember Dennis Rodman was very cute. Uh, we made a rule about it once on his rebounding. You know, anybody that gets 14, 15 rebounds a game is doing something unique and doing something possibly wrong. Well, he, what he used to do is uh, under the basket go go completely kind of out of bounds for a moment or hide under the basket for three seconds, then come out from underneath, and he'd be the closest to the rim. So we had to start watching rebounding three-second three counts. Uh, another thing he would do would uh, go alongside a player and just straight on one's wrist. And uh, all of a sudden, a person didn't realize their wrist was clamped and they couldn't free themselves. And he would do it at a real opportune time to where then it would look like he would actually jump with two hands first, and he did. And um, he, he was a unique uh, guy, uh, uh, behaviorally as well, you know, he, he reminded me of some of the difficult young people with that, you know, what I call the gifted and talented people in my classroom that you have to watch and monitor. Uh, but, but he was fun to work with because he understood that as long as you, he knew that you were for him and not against him, he worked well with you. But that's a couple of trick people. Carl uh, Malone was one that used to flail his arms uh, on, on, on anybody that would steal a ball, a good strip. His arms would go out and flail because he, it was almost that he was offended that somebody took the ball from him cleanly, and his arms would flail out. And when, and when he did that, I said, you know, you got to expect them. I'm going to call. Uh, well, now today, today they called it flagrant, but at that time I said, I'm, I'm going to call a tech on that because I know exactly what you're doing. And the other great thing he did was arch his back backwards as if he was pushed. If he was ever under the basket, he had a phenomenal way of arching his back, his lower back, and then moving forward as if the player behind him pushed him. So, you know, these techniques and styles, you have to pick up on unique players, and we learned it, you know, as a group. And, of course, there's copycats. Players, like coaches, they, they copycat whatever's, doing, whatever's going well. And, um, and so we got a lot more people that – that did the same things. Let, let me ask you uh, this, and this is a tough one, because when the Jerry Donahue um, uh, stuff came out, as a referee for me, and I'm at the high school, uh, actually strictly high school there uh, level, you know, because the biggest thing we hear, especially at my level, and uh, I don't know what you hear mostly at, at, at yours, is you're cheating, ref, you're cheating, ref. So then when that came out, you know, we were all guilty by association, you know, and I, and I hate that because you know, I'm not, we're not cheating. We don't, oftentimes I have nothing, not, I just want the game to be fair and both chances, both teams have a chance to win. So then you had the cheating thing and if you, I see you're cheating, you're cheating. How, you're coming on that, that whole era, that whole debacle with that. Well, Kevin, I tell you, um, it was one of the most overwhelming uh frightening things to me personally and professionally to basketball, particularly the NBA, 
and particularly the leadership team, starting with David Stern, uh, because um, it was something that was done in such a um, sneaky way that uh, it was very hard to believe that somebody was doing something like that. Uh, you know, we have at that time 60 officials. I had uh, assistant supervisors that, that took care of 15 in a group. I had four of them. Uh, the same kind of errors or something of that nature would, could be made by any of the officials. So he did it in a very uh, clandestine kind of way to do what he did. Uh, and the, the problem for me at the time was on a personal nature of my own career was it happened on my watch. And, uh, and I, I knew that there was a possibility that this was so big that I could not carry on the work that I think I could have done best in my career in basketball and anything I've ever done was to lead a group of officials for higher levels of competency. I think because of being an educator and a coach, uh, you know, it, 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 and I knew that it may be a problem for people in the corporate sector that when you have something this profound and so bold um, and it gets out there worldwide, that it's hard for me to hold a position. Uh, I, I think, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know how I was scoring basically with, with the NBA in terms of their embrace for me to continue on. I had a sense that they recognized I was trying to improve people, um, but I think also this was too overwhelming, and I think changes had to be made, and, um, and, and there were changes. Uh, you know, I, I took on a role of director of development, uh, and, and Stu Jackson even took on a less of a role, who was my immediate supervisor as VP of operations. It just, it just shook everything. But I think the good news was the Donaghy story, he was trying to create a ripple effect that we were involved or some others were involved in some uh, pranks and things of that nature, not gambling, but, uh, but it, it, couldn't, it couldn't float because it was really him. Uh, he he was the kind of guy that, uh, by the way, a very bright guy uh, and a, a, a very talented referee. I mean, this was not somebody that had to go about doing something. I think he he had this um, came out of the inner city of Philadelphia, and and I think uh, and that's a good thing. Uh, but I think he'd rather be kind of a guy that looks like he'd rather be on a street corner hanging out with the guys when he's gotten above the street corner and moved his house, his family, and his life into another echelon of life. And uh, I see that with players sometimes. I've, I've said that to players sometimes. You know, you, you've, got your bo you've got your guys with you, but you've got to raise them up because you had an opportunity to come out of wherever you came out of. It's the same in my life. So uh, I think he stayed with those crowds and stayed around somebody, and they lured him into something, and he got into trouble. And, uh, but I was very, very happy to believe and, and hope that the percentages are very high that people believe that this was a singular situation and it, it doesn't exist for any other referees in this. So I, I was just hoping that that's what the fans believe, even though they will, those that gamble and those that like to talk those controversies will continue to do so. Um, but, but Donaghy made himself stand out um, uh, tremendously on his own. And, and what was unfortunate, I think he tried to include other people, but, uh, you know, the information just wasn't there to confirm anything like that. And uh, it was so very unfortunate for him in his life, and I think it also affected me in my life. You know, he's just somebody who, you know, in, in all the things of basketball that I've followed over the years, you know, that one... <sighs> 
it's tough. It's just tough to get past that. He hurt a lot of people, a lot of innocent people, uh, his own family too. Uh, yep. But you know, what, one of the things that I was wondering about is, you know, with with you know, Adam Silver has actually been pretty out front when it comes to wanting to, you know, legalize gambling on the games, et cetera, et cetera. And I would think that the referees would probably not be in favor of that because that just puts a target on them if there ever is a a, a close call. How do you feel about the whole gambling, legalized gambling coming into you know basketball? Yeah, you know, you know, Bruce, um, you know, from the social order of things and the fact that uh, you know we had this incident that that affects sports everywhere, especially in officiating. Uh, I think Adam, by the way, is a tremendous leader. He's a great listener. He is uh, a very embraceable man in terms of uh, he doesn't have the staunchness and the and some of the toughness, although he, he will do that, as David, you know, as he raised this empire of the NBA. Uh, I think Adam comes with the pieces that maybe David didn't include so much and so often, uh, and he comes with some of the sensitivity to people and things. This particular area, uh, you know, I, I'm only going to throw it up there in the air. It seems like if it's organized, uh, you know, may, maybe gambling in this manner will have its uh, benefits to those that like to do it unofficially, now they can do it officially. Maybe that saves people from going off the off the off the, off the chart. And, and for officials, seems like this type of stuff will always be in the minds of those people that like to gamble. And I don't know if you change the rules by allowing some of the things to go well and um, to, to become public. And then it, I think it still remains the same. There's always going to be a group that thinks that I, I think that's probably the same with some usages of drugs. I think with his money involved and people can make more money doing something illegally, uh, they may do it. So though marijuana may be something that's now being a, uh, an embraced, uh, drug, uh, socially, uh, th- there's going to be something else going on that will, will, where somebody can make money on it, you know, in a, in a way. So I, I don't like gambling in general. I never really gambled. That's why it may be, may be easy for me to be a ref. I'm not good at gambling, um, so and I come from a neighborhood where guys gambled everything. You know, every pitch in a baseball game, they put a dollar into the next pitch is going to be a strike. I mean, these are the kids I grew up in Brooklyn, and although we were great sports fans, I just never got never got into that kind of stuff. And uh, you know, it, it's just one of those things. I don't know yet. The jury's out in the Ronnie Nunn mind of whether gambling officially is good for basketball or not. And I think we're at all levels of basketball. So you guys, you and my dad, uh, Ronnie, mentioned Scott Foster, which I've heard him say that name, but the only real recognition that comes to mind for me would be his tete-a-tete with Chris Paul, or you think of a guy like Draymond Green. So the NBA probably is being consumed on its biggest level yet, and the guys are bona fide superstars. BJ, again, talked about your relationship and communicating with those players. What do you think would be key, not just to the skill set of being able to be a good referee, but having conversations with the megastars of today as officials? You know, I think um, I actually think the megastars of today, with certain exceptions, uh, are, are better in terms of their own interpersonal reactions, relationships with you know authority figures in general, uh, but particularly with officials in the NBA. So. Uh, it has always been, my, when I was a director and even when I refereed, and thanks to BJ bringing that out, I always wanted to communicate when I saw something that 
that somebody looked at, you know, asked me a question and didn't believe something I was trying to do correctly. So I think communication is big. Uh, Scott Foster, for example, um, when I first saw it and moved him higher levels, I didn't want him to copy, for example, some of the things of, of a great referee like Joe Crawford did. When it came to uh, relationships with players, sometimes uh, Joe was too authoritarian, too quick with his whistle, and uh, and giving out you know disciplinary technicals and things of that nature. Uh, Scott was kind of going along that route, and I was telling him, listen, the day of that kind of uh, uh, response with with no conversation and nothing is is going to create more problems. I I think that's no matter where you are in life and on the court. You know, these guys are the same way as people in life, and you've got to work with people. Now there are guidelines and and boundaries, and when people cross it, uh, you know, technical. I, I've I've done my fair share of technicals, although one of the least in the league during my era, um, because uh, I believe there is a, a way of being fair, firm, but also approachable. And, uh, and when somebody is, is really not acting right, then you really have to put the tech on them and get them into order or, or you know, go sit down. I, I don't believe in um, playing the call game that was once thought about in years prior to my coming where referees would manage you in terms of if you talk too much, here's another one of those fouls or contacts that were questionable that Kevin and I were just referring to. The managing of people on the court are the way you manage people in terms of the guidelines you set for them, in terms of behaviors. And when they overstep those behaviors, it's just like when I was in Brooklyn growing up as a kid. You know, you get a lot of shots and then finally tell somebody enough is enough. And that's when you have to stand firm. And, uh, and you shouldn't uh, take advantage of the whistle or the badge, so to speak, and take advantage of knowing because you have that power, you become too freely using it. I just wanted Scott Forster to stay away from that. I think he got close to that. But I thought I've seen him change and um, make his competency of his work really get above the behavioral issues. I want to take a little left turn from here because one of the things that, that's really unique about you, Ronnie, is your basketball family. Your uh, daughter, Ilana, worked for the league in public relations. She was then with Bill Duffy Associates as a marketing genius. Uh, she married a, an NBA player, Emeka Okafor. Uh, you have unbelievably beautiful grandchildren whom I've seen uh, on the internet. Uh, I'm friends with Ilana on Facebook. Yeah. And I just want to, I, I just want to, you know, do you ever think about your basketball life and how all of these things kind of, you know, what, what basketball has meant to your family and, and the future of your family? Well, Bruce, thank you so much for saying that. Um, you know, I'm not a holy roller, and uh, the good Lord knows I'm one of, most, one of his most difficult servants, to say the least. And, uh, I, you know, I just have to thank, uh, I have to thank God for the wonderful uh, family I have, uh, starting with my wife and the way she's managed our daughters. I didn't have any sisters when I grew up with my brother and I. I didn't know the dynamics of having a, a young woman in the house. Uh, although, you know, mom was always highly respected by my dad and the both of us. But um, the girls have done really well. And as a matter of fact, I remember when Alana came to the NBA, I said, make sure you don't date any players. And if you don't think I'm right, ask your mother. So um, long story short, uh, <laughs> she kept that pretty much close to the vest. And 
was really very uh, – I thought she was a very likable person to the players. She in, involved a lot of them with the uh, rookie transition program. I thought she carried herself real well. And then one day uh, she mentioned this young man that um, wanted to know how to see, you know, the Statue of Liberty. Then next he wanted to go to the museum, and finally he wanted to go to a Broadway show, a Mecca Okafor, and he said, uh, I'd like to go to a Broadway show when I come in town to New York, but I don't want to go alone. Will you go with me? And I think Alana had been dealing with players for over five years. And, of course, she said, I, I really don't date anybody. That, she goes, oh, no, it's not a date. I just don't want to be a 6'10 guy sitting in the wrong seat at a, at a, at a Broadway play. So, um, so sure enough, uh, they went, and that started it. And uh, I have two very unique uh, son-in-laws. They're tremendous. Alana has a sister named Alexi. She's a civil rights lawyer. Her husband is a civil rights lawyer. They're both. Harvard Law School grads. Uh, I'm very proud of that. Uh, Alexia also was, uh, for a year, the one of the managers for the University of North Carolina Chapter Hill basketball team. So the girls stay close to basketball. And my son-in-law, who works um, uh, separately from any corporation, also a civil rights lawyer, uh, Jim Freeman. And uh, they both work, uh, him independently, and, and Alexia works out at the University of Denver's law school as a uh, extrinsic program of getting folks into civil rights law more uh, that work corporate law, and she's doing a phenomenal job. So uh, with God's grace, Bruce, trust me, uh, right now they're special with two grandchildren each, a boy and a girl each. I am humbled by it all and certainly undeserving. Well, I, I definitely wouldn't say you're undeserving. You are, you know... You're an incredible role model, incredible guy. So I want to ask you and Pops kind of the same question here, right? So obviously your daughters have been incredibly successful. Monica is being incredibly successful as she climbs the ladder in sports media. What is it about, you know, what are the what are the things that referees as parent what, what what are some of the lessons as a parent that you guys could take from wearing the striped shirt? Hey, good, Kevin, good. you want to grab that first? <laughs> Um, you know what? That's a. I, I tell you a story real quick. That's a good question. So Monica would come to me. Her sister and mom would go to my high school games, right, Ronnie? And yeah. they would see all the abuse I would take. And, right. Uh, they were here in the stands, and what they don't understood, what they didn't understand, was that I don't hear all that stuff. It's muffled. You know what I mean? Plus, I got a yeah. task in, and I realized that ninety-five percent of the stand, people in the stands don't know, never had a rule book or wore a whistle, so it doesn't bother me. But anyway. They sit there and hear that stuff. And they say, Dad, does it bother you? And I said, no, you know, you have to stay focused. You have to stay to, you know, stay, stay toward the task. And I think that helped Monica as she uh, got into basketball and now to the media. You can't worry about it. I, you, you have to treat it as crowd noise and stay, you know, march toward the mark. And, and don't let it distract you. Press on. And I think that's, a, that's, that's one of the biggest things that comes to mind. I could probably think of more, but for the sake of time and show, and you're the star here, Ronnie. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, but uh, listen, we're talking about the same launching pad of things. Uh, I remember bringing uh, my wife and girls to the Madison Square Garden, and uh, people were yelling at me for something. And uh, I think they said, you know, you, the, you, the ref beats his wife or something like that. And she she turned around and she said, I am his wife, and he's a respectable man, you know, or something like this. <laughs> and uh, that, oh, by the way, it turned out to be where uh, 
they were like supporting. They were supporting uh, every call I was making, right or wrong. It was a joke. But I told my wife, "Do not tell anybody that I'm the, I'm associated with you. Just watch the game, because uh, I don't want anything to happen in the stands where people really uh, turn it around in another way." But I tell you what, on the home front, Kevin, I don't know if this happened to you and Monica, but it definitely happened for me, my wife, and my daughters. After becoming a referee. Uh, I became a less impulsive, reactionary person in the house. I became more controlled about when I spoke. I listened more to the girls. They spoke. I, I think raising girls and boys sometimes a little different. Uh, the girls uh, seem to speak more, and you have they, they engage you more about something. Um, and and th- th- there was a delicateness in the in the DNA of these girls, and I, I always. Uh, made sure that I slowed down on my reactions where I think some of us with sons uh, react too quickly and don't, don't listen or don't see um, what they're really trying to emotionally get out to you. So uh, I, I learned from my wife that she says, you know, your years as a referee has quieted you from that Brooklyn uh, background of defense and setting up a fortress around you to make sure you don't get hurt along the way, uh, you know, with people. But I thought that was the biggest thing that I learned from them, that I was quieter, less reactive, and more succinct with what things I, I, I really had an answers for. It's That's such a fun question, Bruce, because even for me thinking about it, my dad is just my dad. Like, he happens to be a ref. The one thing that I do remember is that I never could talk to refs, like, because I, my dad was a ref. I got to see both sides of it, and I don't think that he was going for it as my parent. Um, so it gave me a different perspective as an athlete competing. But that's that's a really interesting question. I don't know that being a ref slowed you down on reactions, though, Dad. That was just you, Ronnie. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's an interesting thing. I, I was very proud to be in basketball, and uh, my, my girls were involved like you, uh, you as an athlete, and they did the other things. I mean, uh, one was a cheerleader, one was, you know, one was uh, played field hockey or whatever, but they were always around sports because of, you know, my life. They never saw me play or anything like that. But um, but they're, they're wonderful daughters, by the way, and they seem to have got the right knuckleheads for husbands. So I'm, I'm happy right now. That's awesome, Ronnie. Well, I am so appreciative of you hanging out with us today. This, now, we, I got to make sure I do a good job of explaining this next piece on how we end the podcast here, Buckets, Boards, and Blocks. That is the name of the show. Ah, Also, an opportunity for us to dive into our subject matter a little bit more with our guest, right? So I want you just to pick one of those three, a bucket, a board, or a block. Uh, As it relates to the joy of basketball? Just pick it and then pick one and then I'll give you the topic. Category. Uh, I'll pick uh, a bucket. Okay. Okay. A bucket. So, yes. Now, I would like you to use that as sort of our analogy on where you see the game today as an official with 19 years of experience. What is it about the NBA game and officiating that you would consider to be a bucket, which is a good A++ thing right now? I like I like the fluidity in the game and the movement that the NBA was trying to get to in terms of movement and uh, openness of the game. That part of the game I like, whether they shoot from the outside or the inside. Boom. 
The fluidity of the game is a bucket as far as Ronnie Nunn is concerned. That was perfect. Well, Ronnie, <laughs> thanks for joining us. For my dad, Pops, and Bruce was on the line. We all had a blast. This was awesome. Well, listen, thank you, guys. Monica, I'm so uh, proud of you, and I know your dad sitting alongside you is as well. Um, it's good to see our women in broadcasting and do, do such a good job. They come with uh, a real genuineness uh, of this field, and now men are obviously more open uh, to having people, uh, women around them and whatnot. I've learned a lot more from having daughters than if I had sons, I can tell you that. So congratulations to you. Uh, Kevin McNutt, I'm pleased to know I have a comrade and a colleague, a colleague in the business that people seldom understand all his particulars. Um, and, of course, Bruce Bernstein, I want to thank you all the time for all the support and the well wishes for me and mine. Uh, it's very much appreciated and that you have a wonderful young man that I first met to speak to uh, in, that, in that seat that day. And thank you very much. All right, let's go. Time to stick the landing. All right, folks. Thanks again to Ronnie, Pops, Bruce. That was a great conversation with some gems in it. I mean, you, you got to love Ronnie's transparency and the work that he's doing now as well. So my BBB for this week, I'm just going with the bucket, and it goes to Erica Wheeler, who was the MVP of the WNBA All-Star Game this past weekend in Las Vegas. First of all, my girl was lights out from behind the three, like just killing it, five of five for 15 first half points, buckets. Um, But also, when you dig a little bit deeper, her story is absolutely incredible. She was undrafted. She's now a WNBA All-Star. She lost her mom while she was in college. And as she was accepting the award in the post game with Holly Rowe, literally anybody with a pulse and warm blood still running through their body had to check their eyes because it was as if someone was cutting onions. I mean, she was so incredibly emotional, so much gratitude, not just for her journey and the people that had supported her, but also the other all-star WNBA players that were her teammates as well. So that is what you root for. That is why we love sports. She's an inspiration. The Fever are doing their best to compete in the second half of the WNBA season. By the way, guys, keep an eye out for that because it's going to be a good one. So Erica Wheeler is my bucket from the WNBA All-Star Game on this week's pod. Again, thanks to all of our folks that rolled with us today. Ronnie Nunn with the quality time. My producer and loyal sidekick extraordinaire, Bruce Bernstein. Our fantastic editor, Ben Wolfen. Please be sure to check out our other shows from Pure Hoops Media. The Mike Wise Show. Catch and Shoot with Adam Stanko and Noah Kozlov, and the Pure Hoops podcast with BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman. We'll be back next Thursday with Buckets, Boards, and Blocks. But until then, enjoy your hoops. Buckets, Boards, and Blocks with Monica McNutt has been a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. 